One of the questions that I often ask myself when I come on retreat as a practitioner, which I did, I was sitting here last month, I sat for a while, and always one of the questions that comes up pretty quickly in retreat is, what am I doing here? And I think it's a really good and valid question to ask and keep asking, and not to look for the conceptual answer, but to look for the experiential answer, for the experience to inform me, or guide me, or tell me what I'm doing here. And also we hopefully as teachers offer some clarity about what you're doing here. And Tuere began with the first talk. She said it. She said, oh, we're bringing body and mind in the same place. We're putting body and mind in the same place. And she said, we're, we're just pointing at the obvious, right? Like putting body and mind in one place. Where else could it be, really? Even if it feels like it's not, if it's somewhere else, it's all right here. And then Devon was spoke last night really beautifully about the hindrances and the opportunity of what's called the hindrances or the obstacles. And she kept talking, she talked at some point about the ungovernableness of life. That's like the bittersweet truth, right? It's ungovernable, even though everybody's trying to govern it in every which way. Mm. And one of the things she mentioned, she mentioned how we were, had been looking at the, when she gave the instructions today, um, looking at the first foundation of mindfulness, right? She went through the foundation, the, the organization of it in the Satipatthana Sutta. <clears throat> and she said, oh yeah, it's, it's about body, the first foundation, right? It's about breath, it's about posture, it's about the elements. And I'm not sure if she mentioned the 32 parts of the body, but she said all activity, being mindful physically in all activity, like, like listening, like right now, be mindful of your body while you're listening. Be aware of your body, feel it, sense it, relax into it, with it. And that's really good. That's the first foundation of mindfulness, how to practice while you're speaking. So I want to feel my body as it's speaking, and you want to sense, feel, be aware of your body as you're listening. And the interesting thing about Devin was she left out a major part of the first foundation. So I gave her some shit uh, later. Because <laughs> I was here last week, and I was teaching that part of the, <laughs> of the first foundation, which is what's called the charnel ground contemplations, because it's about the body, and this is where the Buddha put mindfulness of death, because the body is born and it dies. And we want to be mindful of that, because, and of course I know you know the answer, why the because, because it's the truth, it's the Dharma, it's the way things are. Everything that's born dies. It's normal. And we spent a week last week exploring that as practice. And it's very powerful because it teaches us something. It humbles us from our grandiose idea that we're going to live forever, which is usually people know they're actually not going to live forever, but they don't believe it, right? Not really. We all really think, oh, not me. Yeah, I know everybody else dies, but 
And I'm joking a little bit, but I'm also being serious underneath the joke because we don't really live as if we know we're going to die because that would make life much more precious, both our lives and the lives of others because it's true for all of us. And Devin, and uh, was it this morning that you, yeah, she used this poem from Richard uh, Wagamese um, that I'm going to repeat because it was so beautiful and so um, pointing to what we want to point at in this retreat and teach about and rest in and live in. And he said, I don't know the word for it. I don't know the word for it. That space between seconds. And I mean, really, you could just feel for a moment that space between seconds. He said he didn't know the word for it, but he said, I've come to understand for myself that it's the punctuation of my life. This space between seconds. Sometimes we talk in meditation to be mindful of the space between the thoughts. Because thoughts come and then there's a space and then the next thought come. Be aware of the space. Because as Richard Wagami says, between each word, each thought, each moment is where the truth of things lies. The more intent I am on hearing it, seeing it, feeling it, incorporating it, the more precise the degree to which I'm focused on my life and the act of living. It's beautiful, his teaching, because he's pointing to the magic of reality and how it begins to inform our life to be here and be aware. He goes on, he says, I want to dive into those bits of silence. They contain the ocean of my being. They contain the ocean of my being and our togetherness. And so he sees both the the relative and the ultimate in this simplicity of the silence that's here, the space between the sounds. They contain the ocean of one's being and our collective togetherness. It's the magic of reality or the wonder of reality, or the mystery of reality that's right here, both in each of us and all of us together. They're both true. The simplicity of being right here and the magic of being of consciousness together. And I, I, I remember that this is, uh, I've heard a similar phrase like the, the space between the seconds in the Western tradition from Claude Debussy, the composer, who said music is the space between the notes. Music is the space between the notes. That's where the magic happens. That's where the wonder happens. That's where the, the beauty happens in this moment between all other moments. Not before or after, but right here in the indecipherable moment of aliveness now. And so what we're hoping to support here on this retreat, on this simplicity of what we're doing, everybody get how simple it is? 
right? If you don't, I'm going to give it to you now. Sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, eat. Go to the bathroom, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, eat. Go to the bathroom. Sit, walk, sit, walk, eat. No, no, yeah, yeah, eat three times on these retreats. Yeah, go to the bathroom. Then a little more sit, walk. And then there's a little, there's some instructions. There's a talk like tonight. But that's the whole show. We're not doing anything. Or we're doing so little. That's what's powerful. Because we just want to be here, right now, and not be in what happened this morning, or in the last sitting, or yesterday in the talk, or even in the instructions this morning, but just right here, now. And we don't want to be in later, because we have no idea what's going to happen later. And that's true for the teachers, too. We're in this together. We don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what's going to happen. You know, we have some idea, but we'll see. And so waking up to the mystery of life as it lives itself right here. And it's, it's so beautifully simple what we're asking you to do. Be aware of seeing, hearing, thinking, feeling, sensing, moving. You don't have to do anything else. And as I said, and I repeatedly say, it's so simple that it's difficult. We're all not all, but most of us are pretty attached to complexity, to more, to doing. And none of those things are bad. I mean, complexity is part of life sometimes, and, and doing is really fine, but not doing is really important. And that's, we're not as skilled at that. We're, we think we're human doings. We forget that we're human beings. And so to wake up to the goodness of what's just right here now is wild, in my opinion, and in my experience, actually. And so what we're pointing at is the experiential reality of what's here, of what's here now. And in some ways, this is it. This moment is the whole teaching. The whole Dharma is right here. I may have said this, I said it in a group, but Munindraji, who was one of Joseph Goldstein's teachers in Asia, he used to point at, at Joseph or anybody and say, oh, the whole Dharma is sitting right here. The whole Dharma is right here. You don't have to go anywhere for the Dharma. It's right here. But it's turning and looking and being and resting and discovering what Munindraji was pointing at what he knew, what he understood. You know, he understood it's all right here. And so look for a moment. What's here if you're not lost in your thoughts of the past or the future? What's experientially here? And we just relax here in the nothing. Nothing, of course, in the Buddhist way of saying it, is no hyphen thing. No thing. There's no thing here. 
There's aliveness here. There's consciousness here. There's heartfulness here. There's intelligence here. But there's no thing here. It's part of the paradox of practice. We become no thing going nowhere. And of course, nowhere gets hyphenated, N-O-W hyphen here, now here. Nowhere, now here. We start to relax the structures of conventional reality to discover the unstructured, the unconditioned is what it's called traditionally in Buddhism. And, and each of us comes and is made of and is an expression of the unconditioned. And that's talked about in different ways in different religions, in you know, in different in Western religions. Mostly, we come from God, or from heaven, or someplace good, something in the good sense. And that's a beautiful way to understand the sacredness of life, which comes from God, or who knows where. I don't actually know where life comes from, but I've seen it come and it's pretty wild when it shows up. How many people have been at a birth? Let me just see. Pretty wild, huh? You know, and you know, may it all go well, the birth, right? Because it's a, it's a moment in time, like a person pops out or is pushed out, or struggles out, or is cut out, or, you know, it's not just easy, there's some dukkha there, but the dukkha leads to the, hopefully, the sukha of new life. I remember, well, being there when my daughter was born and helping, doing whatever I could, even though I had no idea what I was doing, and, uh, and watched her get squatted out her mother was very creative, and it was not not how I thought birth was supposed to be, but it worked, and yeah, and she's she's still doing good, my daughter. <laughs> and wild, I mean, what is that, really? And and. Of course, this is on my mind because we talked a lot last week. At, I taught Maranasati, mindfulness of death, and we talked a lot about birth and death, birth and death, because in the Zen tradition, they're not two things. If you go to the Zen monastery in the San Francisco Zen Center, and you go, and they they call you to um, to the um, meditation by banging on a big wooden plaque and they bang and then they quicken it and then at the end after about five minutes they go really quick and if you're not in the hall you can't get in nobody comes late there and I've been left out a few times, believe me. But, but what's, what's written on the plaque that calls you to meditation is, great is the matter of birth and death. And birth and death is hyphenated. Great is the matter of birth, hyphen, and hyphen, death. Life passes quickly and is swiftly lost. Awaken, awaken, do not waste your life. And that caught my attention as a very young man where I, I didn't know anything about Buddhism. I was just looking for a place to meditate and somebody said, you can go there and it's free and you don't have to talk to anybody. So that seemed good to me. And, uh, but that, that changed my life, that meditation place and what was written there. 
because there was something true. Great is a matter of birth and death, and birth and death as one thing. And even now, you can see it. Everything just arises and passes, arises and passes. Thought, feeling, sound, smell, taste, touch. Sometimes things um, arise for a while, or, you know, a few minutes or an hour, but they change. Everything arises and changes, arises and changes, born and dies. And even this talk, which was born a few minutes ago, will end in a few minutes. And it's not a mistake. That's the beautiful thing about teaching Maranasati, mindfulness of death, is it's normal. Everything that's born dies. Not a mistake. It can be tragic. It can be heartbreaking. You know, when we lose someone uh, at a young age or, or, or in an accident, you know, all of a sudden. But, but even that is just part of what happens. It's tragic, but it's not a mistake in the sense that somebody should not die. People have died ever since people were born. And it's the same of flowers and trees and turkeys and deer and antelope and elephants and mosquitoes and ants and worlds and universes, as far as we can tell. It's just part of how reality functions. Mm. So, the reason I'm saying all that is because when we see that, we can start to appreciate our life right now. In Buddhism, it's said, this is a precious human birth. This, and I'm pointing at me, but I'm pointing at you. This is precious. This aliveness, this person, this consciousness. And, and, and the potential of that to help people and help the world and help yourself and help your family and help the human race, which needs help. And, but it's also even more than that, it can even have fun, right? I know we talk a lot about dukkha and Buddhism, but there's something called sukha, which I like both. You know, I don't know if I like dukkha, but I'm good with dukkha. I know about dukkha. I've had plenty of dukkha, but I like sukha too. Sukha's, you know, happiness, joy, uh, uh, enjoyment, delight, right? Fun, in my language, we can have fun with life. And it's not all fun, and it's, it's not all sukha, and it's not all dukkha, it's both. And we want to wake up to the totality of what's here, moment by moment by moment. Have you noticed that some mo moments are good? Anybody had a good moment while you're here? One? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Most people. Some, still some people didn't raise their hand. <laughs> Anybody had a not good moment while they're here? Okay. Okay. Some people are very equanimous. <laughs> but, but really, it's just that's, that's not a mistake. It's just the way things are, birth and death, good and bad, right and wrong. It's how reality seems to function. And I don't mean we need to go along with the wrong. I don't want that misunderstood. We can respond to the wrongs of this world, and there are wrongs in this world. But we can't respond to them skillfully if we're not here. 
we're not present, if we're not aware, we're not awake, and we don't have access to the totality of what's sitting in our seat, which is intelligence and and uh, heartfulness and a certain kind of um, strength and uh, potential to discover what's needed to respond to the dukkha of the world, to the not right in this world. And so what we're doing here is like going to the gym. And I often think of meditation retreats like going to the gym because I like to go to the gym, but I don't like to be in the gym all day, every day. You know, it's good for an hour. And then I want to go. And here we're doing a long hour here. At, <laughs> you know, but, but what I mean by that is you, certain muscles, certain capacities get built by doing something intensively. And then we don't just want to sit on the cushion forever. We want to take what we learn here in a moment and in the next moment and see if we can stay in the moments when we get home and in the moment when we go to work and in the moment when we have to deal with the world, which is, in my language, a shit show. You know, it's... It's not in great shape, in my opinion. One of the things that makes it a little easier for me is Buddhism points to the ongoingness of human dukkha and the slow evolution of the human race to really wake up and be mature. And that's a whole other talk I'm not going to go into. But... Um, Really what I wanted to keep pointing at is the kind of uh, um, goodness we can find in a moment here. And the goodness doesn't mean it's all good. It means goodness even when it's not good. That there's a kind of gratitude for just being here. Somebody else said this today. um, That there's a kind of gratitude to just be in the moment. Even when it's a difficult moment, there's, okay, I'm here, even though I'm sad, I'm grieving, or I'm angry, I'm pissed off, but I'm here with it. I'm not split off from it. I'm not denying it. I'm not pushing it away. I'm not trying to act on it. I'm trying to wake up through it, with it. And that's radical practice. That's very radical to open to the truth of what's here and stay with it energetically, kinesthetically, somatically, and see what happens to it as we live with it here. We're mindful of it here. And so there's a kind of gratitude that I I felt it this morning sitting you know, and it wasn't the best sitting or a great sitting, but it's just a good enough sitting. And it's just, I'm just grateful to be here and be aware and to be aware of whatever is here, even when I don't like it. Because, yeah, the truth is, I don't always like it. And of course, gratitude is one of the uh, I often think of gratitude as the fifth Brahma-vihara, right? Right. There's metta and karuna and mudita and upekka. I don't, actually don't know the Pali word for gratitude. Oh, it's it's down there. What's the word? Uh, it's written on the little hut there. Say it again. Thank you, katanuta, katanuta. Yes, and I think it's the fifth Brahma-vihara. The Buddha didn't say that, but I'm saying it. Because uh, it's such a beautiful response to reality, really, to, to, to have some gratitude or appreciation or acknowledgement. Um, and with some, I looked it up in the dictionary, gratitude, and I looked in the thesaurus, and appreciation and acknowledgement were two of the words that came up. And then also... Merit and virtue, which is really, I thought that was beautiful, thinking of gratitude as a virtue, because the, the Brahma-viharas are part of the virtues. And, uh, 
And so just to stay here and appreciate this moment. We're here. And we won't always be here. We won't always be at Spirit Rock. We won't always be alive. And the magic that I'm pointing at, or the wonder that I'm pointing at, is that this is actually the only moment there is. Whereas we like to say in New York, hey bro, this is it. And it is, this is it. Everything else is an idea. Either a memory or a fantasy. This is the only moment of your life is right now. And to come into harmony with that is very powerful. Because mostly we think, well, wait, I've had a lot of other moments. You have. That's true. But they're gone. They are not here. We might remember them. We might be fondly remember them. They might make us happy to think about. That's not a problem. But that thinking about it is happening only in this moment. It's kind of wild if there is no past or future. If we just live right here for a little while, just even for 10 minutes, just live right here for 10 minutes or 10 days, something like that, and see what happens. Because your whole life is actually right here. And the question I see, I wrote down here, what happens if you open to that truth? What's here if you're not lost in the thoughts of the past or the future? What's here if you give yourself fully to the present moment? We've talked a bit about love while we're here, and it's a beautiful part of practice that's underemphasized. The love of the Dharma, the love of the truth. And that and that's understood to be very powerful in Buddhism and very powerful in Western religions. The truth will set you free is actually true. So, to think about what in your heart brought you here may also help you land here more fully because there are many different reasons why people come. Their heart is seeking freedom or seeking love or seeking peace or seeking compassion or seeking healing or or seeking quiet, or seeking silence, whatever it might be. But usually that seeking is a response to some difficulty, right? Is to feeling unfree, or unhealthy, or, or not quiet, or being tired of our minds talking to us all the time, even when we don't want them to say anything. You ever notice that about your mind? I always think it's so interesting, like, just stop thinking for a little bit, please. Oh, I'm serious, stop it. And, and can anybody do that? And, and I'm asking it because it's so important to see that we're not in control, that the mind itself is ungovernable but we can be aware of that ungovernability. Meaning we can be aware that the mind is thinking and that we didn't do it. And that is the beginning of freedom from thought. 
because we're in a world, not everybody and not every culture, but definitely in the United States of America, thought is highly valued. You know, didn't somebody say, I think, therefore I am? And we do it differently. I don't think, therefore I am. <laughs> the amness is not a thought. The amness is sitting in your seat. And that's true. Nisargadat Maharaj, a great teacher in the last century, he wrote, I am that. But he didn't tell you what that was. But he was talking about the, the, the essence of what's here. I am that. Oh, so what in your heart brought you here? Sometimes uh, I feel grateful for dukkha, which is paradoxical, but it's true. As my friend, I don't know if I mentioned it here in a small group, I said my friend Rick Fields, who died of cancer when he was dying, he wrote, heart broken open. A little haiku from Rick, heart broken open. And he was talking about how the letting go of dying broke his heart open. He was grieving, but he also, there was something good in it. And I'm saying this because uh, it was heartbreak that got me to meditation. I, uh, I had been married and the marriage broke up and I was heartbroken really heartbroken young man. I was very sincere and didn't know in some ways, I didn't know marriages broke up. Like my parents stayed together forever. And, and most of the couples I knew in my community, the couples stayed together, the adults. And my marriage broke up and I was really heartbroken. And after that, I had, a, I had a romance with a woman in San Francisco who was an Arab Israeli. And, um, and we had a nice romance and she went back to the Mideast and I liked her. So I thought, I'll go to the, I'm gonna go check it out. Partly because I'd never been to Israel and hadn't been drawn there, but I'm Jewish by birth. And I thought, I thought, oh, I should see, this is where my tribe came from. So I should go see, but really I wanted to go see this woman, and, you know, but that, that was up and down, but good to see her. But, uh, but it was very interesting to be in Israel and, and uh, learn about Judaism in that way and learn where it came from and what happened. And one of the things I did was I did some of the traditional Jewish ceremonies for what's called the High Holy Days. And uh, that's the new year, Rosh Hashanah. And then, in, and then the last day is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, I believe are 10 days called the Days of Awe, A-W-E, the Days of Awe where you're not supposed to do anything but be and see what's here. And so I did that. I mean, I, I appreciate now the days of awe even more than I did then. But then, then I did the, um, the days of atonement and, and it was in Hebrew and English so I could understand what they were saying. And one of the atonements really bounced out and grabbed me because it was for hardening of the heart. And I realized my heart was hardening because of what happened, my, my heartbreak, that my heart was hardening. And you atone for the hardening of a heart. That's a sin in, in traditional Judaism. And so that moved me very much and then some days later, I went to the Western Wall, which is called the Wailing Wall, 
where people pray. And I didn't know how to pray, but I knew, I knew you put your hands on the wall. And people have been doing that for thousands of years. So I put my hand on the wall and I just said to myself, I said, how do I tone for hardening of the heart? Because I didn't want my heart to harden. I knew that wasn't a good thing. And I got an answer, which was wild. I didn't expect an answer. I mean, I, I was, just to give you a little more context, I was actually like a hipster, old hippie hipster musician. I didn't care about spirituality. I didn't really care about the Jewish religion, but, you know, I was Jewish, so check it out a little. And then, and I put my hands on the wall, and I'm not expecting anything to happen by praying, which my prayer was, you know, how do I keep the heart from hardening? And I get an answer. And if you get an answer at the Wailing Wall from God, <laughs> you got to listen. You, you got you to keep your ears open. <laughs> and so, and the answer was meditate, which is like meditation is not really a Jewish thing. Come on, <laughs> let, let me be honest. And I was like, meditate, you know, give me a break, God. And, but, you know, if God speaks, you got to listen at least a little bit. And that's how I got to meditation. Really, it's true. That's a true story. And, and it changed my whole life, right? Because I went and, and I found a meditation teacher, spent some time with him, didn't like him. He was unethical, uh, the person. It was kind of a new agey somebody directed me to. And it was good enough so I saw, oh, it's powerful to meditate. And then I started going to Zen Center because you could just go there free and you didn't have to listen to anybody. And I was still kind of punky and didn't want to listen to anybody. So, and so it was great. But it was one moment at the Wailing Wall. Boom. So the magic or mystery of life of what happens, of aliveness. You know, and there's all these variants of what we might be grateful for. Some people are grateful for the silence that's here, for just letting our minds calm down. Atrishanti said it this way, he said, to be intimate is to feel the silence, the space that everything is happening in. And what he's pointing at is both individual and collective. If we get quiet for a moment, we see thoughts just happen in the space of consciousness. Feelings happen in the space of consciousness. Sensations happen in the space of awareness. Awareness is, there's nothing there, right? Everybody got that? Like if you, could anybody show me their awareness? Anybody have it in their pocket or in the other room? Where's your awareness? It's here, right? You're all aware, aren't you? Anybody not aware right now of something? Right? But there's no thing here when we point at awareness. So it's like space. So the paradox of the Dharma is this kind of everything's here, but there's no thing here. Everything's appearing and nobody's actually doing it. But it's, here's my opinion, 
is it's good what's here. It's good you're here. And it's good to do retreat. In the group today, we were talking about, you know, what happens and the ups and downs of retreat. And, and I said something, it just came out. I said, well, you know, you're all good. Or you're all good enough. How's that? You're all good enough. And it's true. Not a lot of not good people come to retreat. I mean, this is not the most exciting thing to do, right? It's not the most profitable thing to do, right? But there's something good, whether you know it or not, whether the knowing of the goodness is intuitive or whether it's, whether you're really clear, you've done retreats and you know how good it is just to sit and walk and eat and Go to the bathroom and sleep and be aware because there's something powerful in the simplicity of being and being alive and being aware and being here. Mm. Oh, I've got a lot more on this talk, but I'll give you a little bit of it. Of course, too much. Hmm. Mostly, I just want to keep pointing at this moment and the goodness of being here, the goodness of a moment really the gratitude for one moment of life and then the next moment of life. Mahatma Gandhi, who had a birthday last week, said our, or, our existence as embodied beings is purely momentary. Our existence as embodied beings is purely momentary. What are a hundred years in eternity? And he's pointing at the simplicity of the moment. What are a hundred years in eternity? It's just this moment. He says, if we shatter the chains of egotism and melt into the ocean of humanity, we share its dignity if we relax, if we let go, if we just get here as humans, just ordinary, ordinary human beings. This is the, the blessing of ordinariness, of just being a human. He says, to feel that we are something is to set up a barrier between God and ourselves. To cease feeling that we are something is to become one with God. So I'll also echo Brother David Stendhal Rasta. I believe he's a Benedictine monastic who said, look closely and you will find that people are happy because they're grateful. People are happy because they're grateful. The opposite of gratefulness is just taking everything for granted. In our practice here, moment by moment, don't take a moment for granted. Be here. Be aware. Be kind, but be here. And when I say be kind, be kind to yourself. And I'll end with Joko Beck, who I can't remember if Joko's still alive. I think she is, we're not sure. But great Tibetan monastic teacher. She said, we can think of gratefulness in practice as a recognition of what is already here. 
We can think of gratefulness in practice as a recognition of what is already here. That as we are present, aware, open, intimate with ourselves and our environment, we discover that gratitude is part of our experience. Being present is the gateway to gratitude. One of the great gifts of this practice is that we do not take anything for granted. We don't know what will happen next. We're grateful with new eyes. So let's sit for a moment. Just be here. In a very relaxed way, you can sit formally or sit informally. It just means relax, be aware of whatever's here. You don't have to change it or fix it or judge it. Just letting yourself be fully human. With all the sukha and dukkha that displays itself moment by moment by moment. Thank you for your presence. We have some time for movement meditation. Please feel free at the end of the talk to just get up and, and leave. You don't have to wait for us. It takes a while to unpack here. So. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.